So, Gunner. Yes, sir. So, you know, you, you know Camille Tootie, right? I do, yeah. I, I was uh, I was talking to her a little while ago, and uh, she was actually told me to uh, say hello to you in Swedish, um, mm-hmm. and and I did uh, to the best of my ability. I don't remember <laughs> w- what is it. Hey, hey, yeah, it's so hard. Um, <laughs> and uh, she's like, oh man, it's I, I gotta I gotta introduce you to uh, uh, one of the people on the NextGov team. Uh, 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 Mohana, and you got to you got to meet her. She's like a great person, and uh, you, you guys would uh, really be a, a, a good good group of people to to talk with. And and so I uh, met up with her, and uh, uh, then the three of us were like, yeah, we ought to get Mohana on on our uh, podcast, and and she agreed to. So we're we're fortunate to have her here. So uh, uh, Mohana Ravindranath, I pronounce that terrible. Oh. Yeah, that that was that was good. Thank you so much. Yeah. So, um, so Mohana, you work for NextGov. So tell us all about NextGov. Uh, well, we are a small team. I think there are about four or five reporters uh, and we cover federal technology. Uh-huh. Um, there is a reporter that's dedicated to cyber. Uh, I, I tend to cover a bunch of different things, uh, federal civilian agency technology, which is uh, pretty broad. Uh, someone covers innovation. Um, so it's a small team, but there ends up being enough to cover. Yeah, yeah. So I saw that um, you know one of the one of the things that you just uh, came out with is uh, an article where you got to sit down with the CIA social media team. I did. Yes, I actually got to go to uh, Langley and hang out with their social media team. Those are the people behind at uh, CIA on Twitter. Uh huh. Yeah. So it was um, funny. Like you were trying to get your laptop in, weren't you? I was. I learned uh, on my way there that they don't have a place to store laptops. They do have lockers where you can leave your phones, and employees have to do that too. Uh, yeah. So I was required to leave my phone in one of those lockers, but they apparently didn't have a place for my laptop. So I had to figure out what to do with it. Yeah. Yeah. So what did you end up doing? I, with... I just went home and left it there. Oh, that's, <laughs> but, that's nice. Yeah, to do the whole yeah. trip. Yeah. Right. I thought I thought you were gonna I thought you were gonna throw it in the bushes and then it was gonna end up being a different kind of a story, right? Where like, suddenly they've <laughs> it very nearly was. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yeah. Yeah. So so tell us all about the about the story that and and your meeting with those guys. Sure. Uh, so I as I said, it was in Langley. So I went there. I met with uh, the the director of that team. Um, and a few of the members, and uh, we just sat in a room and talked about what a campaign looks like, a Twitter campaign looks like. Um, so they walked me through uh, the ideation process, how they actually enact it, who does what. Um, so the CIA has, I think, around 950,000 followers, hasn't quite hit the million mark yet, um, mm-hmm. but they uh, made a lot of waves when they, they made their first tweet, I think, in June of 2014. Um, and they said something like, we can neither confirm nor deny that this is our first tweet. So uh, they got a lot of attention there. Um, yeah. But yeah, it's an interesting group of people who um, are, are really just trying to drive traffic to CIA blogs um, to raise awareness about CIA events and um, CIA history. So uh, it, it's really just a, a new creative way to push out CIA content. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you were saying that um, that it was like 
very one-way sort of uh, communications too, right? Where it's it's like they were typically when when I'm sure like you in in the media and you know or even individuals when you're using something like Twitter, you want to have this engagement where uh, and have a dialogue with people, but they were um, they expressly expressly uh, they, they don't want to do that, right? Right. Yeah. Actually, the director had said, you know, we aren't using Twitter for the traditional reasons that, you know, a lot of companies and organizations do. Um, a lot of companies, large companies tend to use Twitter uh, for customer service. So they, they want to be able to connect directly with, you know, their customers and respond directly to their complaints. And the CIA does not want to do that. They're not interested in responding. And I think maybe only once or twice have they actually responded or engaged in a, in a conversation with another mm -hmm. Twitter user. And in one case, that was Ben Affleck. Oh. So they said they make, they make exceptions <laughs> in, in cases like that, but they are not interested in having a conversation with a, a random citizen about that person's views on the CIA. Yeah, because like when I first thought of that, and I'm like, wow, that's that's pretty typical government of them, right? Where it's like, right. man, they should be all about engagement, right? Um, right. you know, citizen engagement, but then I thought about it more and I can imagine you, you can get all kind of people that are just going to try to pick fights and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And it's, and it's probably a lot easier to just say, no, I ain't going to do it. And, and we're, we're just going to make it more of just a, a means to, you know, get information out there. Um, right. So exactly. And, and this team is part of the office of public affairs. So they're, they are really just interested in raising awareness about, uh, you know, CIA activities and they're not as interested in, in, in actually talking to those people. Yeah. Yeah. And didn't, um, weren't, weren't you also, we were talking about, um, there's, I guess there's a lot of information on CIA.gov CIA that just people don't know about that, you know, things that have been declassified and stuff like that. And, and just because it's on the website, it, it, it doesn't mean that everybody knows about it. And I guess they, the, the CIA Twitter handle uses that to um, share the information that they did release to the public. Exactly. They are not always able to talk about what's going on today, but they can often direct uh, users to PDFs of declassified documents and things like that. So uh, stuff that's happened decades ago um, that is kind of interesting that might have some sort of news appeal today. Uh, they're, they're trying to push as many people as possible to those things. Yeah. What about um, like recruitment where you would think that, you know, getting the uh, millennials today that are all, you know, using social media and all that, are they using this for recruitment for you know employment? They are. Yes. Um, when I talked to them, they said it's going to take a few years until they can realize the benefits um, because at this point they're connecting with people who are maybe in high school or in college. So people who might eventually apply for internships. Um, mm -hmm. So they, I don't think they have enough data right now to say definitively that Twitter has helped them hire more people or hire millennials. But I think anecdotally, they would tell you that, uh, that Twitter is help, helping them connect with a younger audience and they're able to let people know, let young people know what it's like to work at the CIA. Twitter. You know, what's funny is that that sounds exactly like the, that sounds exactly like the kind of answer you would get out of a fortune 500 company. Right. Um, right. that's really interesting. It's like, it's exactly the same position. Like we think this is helping and yeah. we seem to yeah. be having followers. So I guess that's good, but, and we're, you know, uh, it's not so much, um, that we're excited about all the results we're getting from it. It's more like we're afraid to not do it. Um, right. that's really, like, yeah, that's really interesting. Like advertising, right. 
Well, like, it's interesting. I was asking them about measurement and, and how you even communicate to other agencies that maybe don't invest in social media teams. How do you tell them what the value is of your team? Um, and they were saying it's kind of a struggle. It's in some cases, people don't really understand how to measure other than things like retweets and favorites. Uh, how do you really measure the intangible, non-tangible benefits, um, like potentially changing the public perception of the CIA? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. And so it's something that I don't think that they've figured it out yet. <laughs> yeah, no, I, 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 I'm sure a few do. And, and I think they have a really harder problem compared to like other agencies and like imagine like NASA.gov or some uh, a, a much more uh, transparent by default sort of agency and, and is doing all kind of engagement. Um, it's uh, CIA has a, a harder problem. They do. And they actually point to NASA as an example of a a model user. A lot of other agencies do, too, um, of of social media. But NASA also has a lot of, you know, visual content they can push out. And um, I think the CIA might need to work harder to come up with really creative campaigns to Mm -hmm. get people to click on their stuff because they can't always send out a picture. Sometimes they do. Sometimes they send out pictures of like gadgets and things like things you can find in the CIA museum. Yeah, PDFs of redacted uh, lines blacked out and stuff. Right, yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, we're, how many, how many, uh, uh, how many Homeland jokes did you get while you were there? <laughs> Surprisingly, none. <laughs> <laughs> it's an, it an seems enormous like a missed opportunity. <laughs> it, does, it does seem like a missed opportunity. It seems like. You know, well, so one way to go is relatively sober. I'm going to retweet, you know, recruiting opportunities and uh, and CIA World Factbook uh, uh, items. But um, another way to do this would have just be have like the CIA Twitter handle engage exclusively with like satirical Homeland Twitter accounts, right? Um, right. I think that would be yeah, that would be a different kind of account, a different kind of thing. I'll, I'll suggest that to them if I talk to them again. <laughs> <laughs> did you? So how did you come by the idea for this story? Well. Um... They actually had a a pretty interesting campaign recently that was, well, the campaign itself happened a while ago, but for some reason was getting a lot of press recently. Um, And that was when uh, they tweeted in Russian. So uh, a lot of places were were writing, a lot of other news organizations were writing about this campaign. And it was interesting because it's sort of paradoxical, right? The, The CIA is such a mysterious, shadowy organization. They cannot share a lot of what they do. And yet they've joined Twitter, um, which is the whole idea of Twitter is that you are able to communicate with millions of people at all times in real time. And it, it seemed, you know, I, I didn't really understand what they were doing. So um, I called them and asked, you know, can, can you tell me what you're doing? Tell me why this team exists. Um, and they were really happy to talk. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. Uh, but the the campaign the where they were tweeting in Russian was really interesting. They, they walked me through when I was there, the, the thought process. And um, the director there decided um, she wanted to raise awareness about uh, something that the CIA was doing in the 1950s, where they, in, during the Cold War, they would take uh, banned pamphlets and papers and things like that. And they would go to the, the Soviet Union and redistribute those things. So mm-hmm. they had this, this whole uh, this historical campaign. Um, so a lot of those documents detailing that mission have been declassified. So she wanted to drive traffic to that. She wanted to raise awareness about it. So she decided to tweet in Russian um, because she, she, part of the plan was to make people think that the CIA had been hacked. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. So the whole idea was if she didn't come up with some really creative way to get people to click on these things, they weren't just going to 
browse the CIA website to, to learn about this campaign. She was going to have to make them, she was going to have to freak them out a little bit, which is what she did. So uh, she she told me that um, she she has a writer who, on, on her team, she told the writer about this. The writer went and um, did some research and then they composed this tweet and um, it was, it, it appears to have worked. They don't share a lot of stats about how much traffic, in fact, they don't share any stats with us about how much traffic they actually do drive, but she points to that as one of their more successful campaigns. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. And didn't they have to uh, send out like all kind of uh, uh, an, like internal announcements to say, no, we didn't get hacked. Uh, this is, you know, like just so people don't freak out or how, how did, or did they just cut loose? I, I am, uh, I, I don't know that they sent out internal <laughs> messages. Um, but I, I know that, I think for this particular campaign, she had she mentioned on a different podcast that um, that she had talked to the director about it. Um, mm -hmm. So, and and this is they knew they were expecting this reaction. They wanted people to be a little bit confused and bewildered um, yeah. if that meant that they would click on the the link. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Pretty savvy. N not only were they tweeting, they, they only put out one tweet in Russian, but they they tweeted that, and then for half an hour they didn't do anything. They just watched. As speculation goes. so <laughs> that I think is the most genius part. <laughs> <laughs> they were basically trolling everybody. <laughs> exactly, they were watching all these reactions come in. Yeah, yeah, hmm. great. That is so. With that, the program that they were tweeting about—that was the um, was that the was that the same program where the CIA was uh, secretly smuggling in copies of Doctor Shivago into Soviet that Russia. Was yeah, yeah I love that story. The, it's so good. The, the tweet that is in Russian is actually uh, a quote from uh, from Boris Pasternak. So, uh, <laughs> the I forget the translation. I think it's something like um, I, I wrote the novel for it to be read, and that r remains my only goal. Something like mm -hmm. my only desire. Um, so, for the people who were savvy enough, the fo Twitter followers were savvy enough to actually put that into Google Translate. They they realized that this was a Pasternak quote. For everybody mm -hmm. else, they just freaked out and were yelling about how uh, the CIA had been hacked. So you also wrote uh, you also wrote a story about this new program. So 18F is a is a hot topic uh, for us. I think Dave, we're, we're, we have an unbroken string of like 40 18F mentions, like you know going 40 episodes back. Um, <laughs> and so so thanks for helping us uh, uh, tick the box, uh, Mohana. So um, uh, as for that, so there's a 18F uh, just finished experimenting with this like agile development methodology in their last procurement um, where they had a bunch of contractors kind of compete with each other using, uh, using kind of agile processes. And, and it was the artifacts of their agile development process that, that constituted uh, the content of their bid. Uh, so in other words, instead of like filling out a form uh, or responding to an RFP in the traditional way uh, with just like, reams and reams of prose, um, you applied for this procurement by uh, pointing people at a GitHub repository. Um, so you, you mm -hmm. had to actually look at source code, right? Um, so this, this, but this new program that they've got around these, uh, these micropayments, um, this is another kind of a procurement hack or kind of procurement innovation. Can you tell us a little bit about it? Yeah, so uh, they announced this, I think, this earlier this week. They're building a system um, that's kind of a searchable system that uh, federal agencies could use to mm -hmm. define the going rates for, let's say, a senior consultant or something like that, a tech consultant. Um, and the idea is uh, they, they want to make it easier to purchase little bits of code. Um, mm -hmm. And 
I, I guess the, the technical requirement for a micro purchase is something that's less than uh, $3,500. So they are experimenting with a system that would let federal agencies buy little bits of code. And the way they would do that is they would, um, they would put out the requirements for whatever that code is. And then, uh, then teams would, companies would bid, they would bid prices and whoever the, has the lowest price or whoever the agency selects, um, they have about 10 days, I think, to actually satisfy those requirements. And if at the end of those 10 days they do, then they get paid. And if they don't, the agency will move on to the next one. So, they, they stress, 18F stresses in their announcement, this is an experiment. It, it's possible that it's a, a terrible idea, mm -hmm. um, as they say. But uh, it's interesting to me that they are, are looking for ways to involve, eventually involve uh, companies that are non-traditional contractors. So maybe really tech-savvy startups that just haven't really been able to navigate the, the obstacles related to federal procurement might eventually be able to use a system like this to connect with federal agencies. Yeah, and I, well, the thing I really liked about the, their blog post is they said, like like what you just said, is that um, this might be a terrible idea, and they're just mm -hmm. like, hey, let's just try this. Let's you know, it's a whole uh, open source model of you know, fail faster to succeed sooner. It's like, hey, this may be a crazy idea. It may it may be great. Um, it may fail miserably uh, compared to um, a lot of other uh, proclamations uh, people would say in government, and it's like. It's, they're going to lose face if if the thing fails. Where here they're just saying if it's successful, that's that's a bonus. But but let's try all these different things. Um, right. I I really admire their ability to admit upfront that it might not work. Yeah. 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 You never hear that. You never hear that from from an agency. Um, and, and so I like the I like the experiment. I wonder. So I wonder if you have any insight on this. I mean, it seems like. On one hand, it would absolutely lower the barrier to entry for any kind of individual purchase uh, or any individual procurement, right? Because it's going to be less than $3,500. You don't trigger all the GSA schedule, whatnot. Um, but on the other hand, it actually increases the transaction costs for the for the bidders, right? Because I, it's it's a little bit like a like <laughs> it's a little bit like eBay, right? Um, if I'm a uh, if I if I want to be a provider of this code, I have to kind of watch for these procurements, uh, kind of jump on them relatively quickly. And I have to do that a lot uh, in order to kind of make a sustainable business for myself. Um, but did, did you get any feedback from, uh, or did you hear any feedback from the uh, from the kind of the target audience uh, for this kind of procurement? I haven't yet. I, actually, it, it doesn't, it's it's not live yet. So I'm, I'm expecting to hear something in a little bit. I think it debuts, I'm not sure when you'll play this, but I think it debuts uh, October 26th. So, mm -hmm. um, it, it doesn't seem that isn't a consideration that 18F has brought up in the in the announcement, um, mm -hmm. but I expect that is one of the things that could cause it to fail if it does. Okay. Yeah, yeah, because it's uh, if you think about the classic days of like, oh well, we need business development people or you know, and salespeople and and all that. Um, it's just that that model. It, it would be hard to have it be successful in that way, and and like how Gunnar said, being sort of like the eBay sort of thing that may be good for a, like a small, like mom and pop. Um, but that, but the, that could just be a lot of setup work for them to do for $3,500. And I, I guess the $3,500 right. is that's a maximum you could put on a government credit card. Right. For, for a micro purchase. Right. Yes. Yeah. 
But it's true. That's one of the, I think that's also one of the criticisms of the whole agile BPA process, which um, 18F was also spearheading that the, the companies that were vying for spots on that BPA had to um, undergo pretty rigorous. I think it was something like 24 hour actual, you know, they actually had to produce something. And uh, mm -hmm. it's the, the question is, you know, what is the payoff there? Um, it, the criticism was that that process might be a little bit too difficult. Yeah. yeah. Uh, in, in advertising, they call that, or design, they call that like spec work, right? Um, right. Where somebody, somebody just throws a bit out and says like, why don't you make me something and I may or may not buy it. it right. Kind of like puts a very low value on the actual product being delivered um, and kind of self-selects the the bidders in that way. Um, oh, that's really interesting. That's interesting. Yeah. So, and it also reminded me of like uh, bug bounties, like, like how, um, with with uh, say like Mozilla or Google and all that, it's like oh I found a bug in Chrome or something, and then people will get cash for reporting bugs or security vulnerabilities. It could be. I, I'm not sure how specific the the requirements will be that um, that 18F will put out, but yeah. it could be it could be modeled after that. Yeah, you know I I'm just thinking from like and this is red meat for Gunner. I think you you'd probably be all over this. Is it? Um, are when people say, you know, somebody says that, oh, I want to buy some code. Um, th they're not buying it by the line of code. They're, to me, it's like when somebody buys open source software or whatever, you're you're not buying the bits. You're buying the longer term support tail and everything like that. And and one of my concerns is that, you know, somebody says that, oh, well, hey, thirty five hundred dollars, I could write all this code and everything, and then you drop it off and then you walk away. But what about the support tail or any sort of security or ramifications and things like that? It's that, you know, it seems like the technical debt shifts onto the person who bought this bag of code. Right. That's a great point. Uh, I'll be sure to ask them about that. You're bringing up uh, problems that I hadn't even thought of. <laughs> yeah, and that's that, you're right, Dave. That's um, I would love to hear the answer to that, actually, because this could, it, the way you put it, Dave, made me realize that this is actually predicated on having an organization that knows to, what to do when that code shows up. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, most agencies, the vast majority of agencies have long since outsourced their ability to, uh, consume code, even if it's only $3,500 at a time. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, it's going to be, I'm going to go hire a CSC to go worry about the software that I want. Um, and so it seems like there's a very limited audience and you actually have to have a lot of internal technical ability in order to pull off a system like this. That's really interesting. I hadn't thought about that. Yeah. Well, to me, it's very much like the subscription model that we have with Red Hat where, you know, in, in the past, people used to put the dollar value on the bits that they bought. So they would buy a copy of Windows XP, they would go to the store, they would buy the DVD, um, and then they have the bits and then the updates are, are free. Um, and, you know, because it's, or at least it was paid for by that initial license cost. Um, but I think that model is, has broken down and and we see that now with you know like new versions of windows 10 and stuff like that that they the the real value is not really in the initial bits it's the longer term support stream of like how do i how do i patch this thing how do i keep it updated how do i keep it secure um and that's something that we've been doing for years but um and whether whether or not it doesn't have to be open source you could do this with, with have a proprietary software subscription too but i think there's a lot of value in that longer term support uh, tail yeah. I, I, so, Dave, you, you got me uh, now. Okay, so now I'm going to pivot. Uh, Mohana, uh, um, GovExec has like a very specific charter and it caters to a very specific audience. Um, and 
uh, and it's this, there's this interesting kind of trifecta between, uh, industry media, um, and the agencies and specifically with it, right. Um, because there is a, there's what it's an $80 billion, probably more, um, uh, industry, um, that, uh, and there's a very close relationship between, um, between the media coverage, um, between the vendors, um, and those, uh, and those agencies. Um, and so, you did not come from this world. You're, 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 we were talking earlier. I mean, you're what, eight, eight months, um, into this, into this industry. Is this, is this an unusual arrangement in terms of like what a kind of, what a, what a closed internally consistent system it is? Um, or, or is this basically how oil is set up? Is this how telecommunications is set up? And is it always this kind of, I don't want to say cozy cause that has the wrong connotations, but I think you know where I'm going with the, with the question. Um, I, I don't know enough about other industries to know, <laughs> to know uh, how, how uh, unique this is, but it is it is a challenge to cover. Um, it's a challenge to break into it because the infrastructure already exists, the relationships already exist. So it's it's hard as a journalist to break in and say, now you need to start telling me your news. And but but it's uh, it's it's a very it's a world that is it's very. Um, it's rich in the, there's a lot to learn, a lot of really interesting technology, but uh, from cover, I used to cover the private sector before this. So um, I, I often find it's, you know, people don't really necessarily want to talk <laughs> as much yeah. as they do in the private sector, telling telling even a contract, especially uh, when I try to cover contractors now, they're limited. They're always concerned about what they're legally allowed to say. And they don't want to violate whatever um, restrictions there, there exist on their their contracts with the federal government. So it's it's something that, from my perspective, it's it's very, it's, it's a challenge <laughs> to cover this yeah. world. Yeah. Well, it's got to be hard, too, to come up with, like, you know, earth-shattering scoops because, like, you know, A, scoops. I don't know. What do the kids call it now? Takes? Hot takes? Whatever? Hot takes. Um, <laughs> hot takes. Um, I mean, it's got to be hard to come up with those as well because the industry is so cozy. Um, this isn't an indictment of, of, the me of, of, like, the industry media in general, but it's just kind of like an economic reality that um, in an industry this kind of close-knit, it's got to be difficult to do really kind of disruptive reporting, um, just because you, just because these are, you know, these are all personal relationships. And, um, uh, I mean, it, it's, uh, unlike, I, well, unlike, I presume like reporting on government where it's just kind of expected that you're going to be there to embarrass somebody. Um, right. it's gonna, you know, it's, uh, it's a much different dynamic. And then especially with, I know there's, there's GovExec may do this and then other media organs may as well, but like, um, you know, sponsoring industry conferences, right? Mm -hmm. um, which kind of like muddies the ethical water maybe a little bit. Um, I don't, do, you have any, do you have any thoughts on that? I don't want to put you on the spot, but um, I, just, I just think it's really <laughs> interesting. It's just super interesting how this like, how this kind of trifecta, um, how all the incentives align on this. Um, it's true. Um, I, I don't know that I have any comments on the, the ethical implications of, <laughs> uh, <laughs> of sponsoring uh, events, but, um, but I can say at least compared to, as I said, compared to covering the private sector, so much more of the information um, comes from just is based on personal relationships and trust. It's it's really mm -hmm. it's so much harder to make a sell to um, to a federal agency or a contractor um, uh, about. It, it's hard to tell them, you know, eventually this this publicity will be good for you, and that's something that. Mm -hmm. In, in the outside world is, is very intuitive, especially for for startups and and for business. If most businesses I talk to were 
generally happy to talk when I was covering, I covered just uh, IT very broadly before, and I also covered small business before I joined Next Hub. Um, so, you know, I didn't really have a lot of trouble getting people to, to share at least some things about their business or what their operations, and that has been a very hard sell in this sector. That's yeah. interesting. Well, I, well, but I think another thing that you guys um, at NextGov do a really good job at is, is like, uh, it's a lot of hard news. It's not like you're just taking press releases and, um, you know, and it's all sunshine and rainbows and, and everything with everybody um, where, you know, I, I see that with, with other uh, media outlets. But but um, so how do you guys like whenever, you know, I guess there's uh, the, that really tough balance that you may have, too, of of um, doing the hard reporting and, and saying the, you know, telling the truth and everything, but also making sure that that doesn't, you know, burn sources and stuff like that. So how, how do you balance stuff like that? It says the computer guy that doesn't know anything about <laughs> journalism. <laughs> Well, uh, I, I can't speak for other reporters here, but at least my motivation is just to, you know, to print what is true. So I, yeah. I try not to let personal relationships with sources affect what I'm printing. Um, however, it, I, I'm fully aware that those sources do provide access. So um, it's it's a it's a really tough, you know, when when bridges are burned, it's tough. But we try to find ways around it if that happens. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Hmm. Nice. So what, what are some of the other trends that you see going on in the industry that 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 you've been keeping an eye on or, or see coming over the horizon? Uh, well, I'm, I'm interested in the federal government's attempts to recruit people from the um, private sector, whether uh -huh. that means um, getting contracts with with non-traditional contractors. So, you know, trying to attract more startups um, mm -hmm. or getting people to actually work in the federal government, like groups like 18F or the U.S. Digital Services and, and all the other, the various um, branches of that, uh, they, they tend to get people who uh, were at the top of their game in the private sector and bring them in for maybe a year or two year rotation. So that's, it's a trend, it's sort of more on the, the personal personnel side, but I do notice the federal government trying to, to tap into what it sees as a successful model in the private sector, and especially startup, Silicon Valley, Silicon Alley, that whole world. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm also, I'm very interested in the internet of things. Um, it was something that I used to cover before I joined NextGov, but I'm really interested in the the federal government as a potential customer of the internet of things or a user of the internet of things instead of a regulator of. So uh, <laughs> it's, uh, it's, I, I don't see that many um, use cases right now, but I think it's something the government is thinking about. Um, so that's something I'm tracking. Yeah, yeah, security there is gonna be huge. Um, that's something that you, know, you imagine you have all these things that are sitting out there all over the place and then they're either, either out of date or they're just based on protocols that are just inherently insecure. Um, right. And that's that's super scary and, and uh, I worry about that. Yeah, I'm not sure how people are talking about that potential risk. Yeah, well, and you bring up a good point too. Is that what's interesting is a lot of the Internet of Things, where and maybe I'm just maybe I'm just reading too many IBM ads, but like it seems like a lot of the Internet of Things at uh, work is being done down at the municipal level, right? Um, right. Whereas and mm -hmm. up at the federal level, you're kind of reduced to I presume you're reduced to stuff like maybe 
<laughs> maybe the forestry service is interested in it um, and possibly the postal service, right? Like I'm thinking about like fleet management and package yes. tracking and stuff like that. Um, but uh, you're right. Kind of like uh, IOT opportunities kind of, kind of thin on the ground, I guess. Oh, wait, uh, defense department. Never mind. I take it all back. I, I can imagine. <laughs> well, can imagine that on the really civilian side, the postal service has been, um, they, their um, OIG had issued a report about potential uses for the internet of things in the postal service. And they, they were bringing up all kinds of cool potential applications like, uh, like smart mailboxes that you could control like temperature control. You could see what was inside and if they were shipping you food or medicine or something, you could control the temperature. I think the stuff is several years down the line, but, um, but I think some agencies they're thinking about it. But one actually, one pretty concrete use case, GSA and its actual headquarters and its building um, has a bit of a lab, like a uh, a smart workspace lab um, on one floor, and mm -hmm. they uh, they've been testing out things like uh, lamps that they're like motion sensitive uh, sensing lamps, and so you you can't like sit at your desk unless you're <laughs> moving around so that your lamp knows that you're there. Um, but various, various things like that, uh, or just uh, meeting rooms that I think they, they take pictures, like they have cameras that will take pictures of the whiteboard at the end of a meeting, things like that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So it's a, it's a really interesting experiment. I wouldn't say it's widespread yet, but the GSA has been doing a lot of really cool things with regard to using the internet of things in their buildings. That's something that could scale to other agencies. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think, too, whether it's Internet of Things or mobile, it's I I worry that a, a, sometimes agencies will take a solution and then look for problems with them. And, and they'll just in, instead of like trying to look for a problem and say, that, oh, well, we could solve that with Internet of Things or, or mobile or something like that, instead of, uh, you know, name some obscure agency. And it's like, oh, we'll have a Internet of Things app that does or a mobile app that does something that no citizen really wants um, because we be, because once we do mobile that makes us more relevant so mahana i'm actually i'm interested in your uh in your take on this because you know in the i think we take in the government we take for granted that you know uh, uh there are kind of boondoggles and you know people building solutions that nobody actually cares about but that actually that happens in the private sector all the time as well so i mean have you noticed having made the transition recently from the private sector to the public sector um have you noticed the government being uh kind of uniquely or unusually broken? Uh, it's a good question. <laughs> uh, I don't want to burn bridges, uh, but I <laughs> I don't know that it's it's uniquely broken. Actually, I do see a lot of innovation. It, it's funny, when I tell people I cover government technology, they're always kind of surprised that there's enough to cover, enough for like, you know, a whole team of people to cover, but there is. There's a lot yeah. of emerging technology, a lot of, I mean, just scroll through FedBiz Ops one day and you can find all kinds of really interesting, you know, solicitations for things that could come to fruition 10, 15 years down the line. So um, I think it, I think the government, I, I find little experiments like the one that GSA is doing in its, um, in its headquarters. I think uh, I find that really, it's, I, I really applaud them for doing that, but it's also, that's exactly the kind of experimentation that happens in the private sector too. So maybe at a different pace, but, mm -hmm. but they're doing it. They're doing all the right stuff. I wouldn't mm -hmm. say it's uniquely broken at all. I think it just operates at a different time, um, time cycle. Sure. Sure. Okay. Makes sense. Yeah. Well, Mahana, I want to thank you so much for, uh, for spending this time with us. This is the first time we've had an actual, actual real life credentialed member of the media, um, on the show <laughs> and it's, it's been a, and, and it's been a real treat. Um, so, thank you for uh, having me. 
Of course. Uh, so, Mahana, when uh, when folks want to learn more uh, about the about the work that you've done, and specifically want to take a look at that uh, the CIA social media team story um, and the uh, the eighteen F uh, uh, the eighteen F microservices story, um, what website should they go to? Uh, they should go to dgshow.org. That's correct. And nice. then right after dgshow.org, they can go to nextgov.com. Oh, is that the one? <laughs> <laughs> no, that's great. That's great. Um, well, again, Mahana, thanks so much for your time. Yeah, Thank thanks, you. Mahana. <laughs>